0: Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, Fiber Internet, Streaming TV, Home Security, and Automation in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance, for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com.
1: I'm your host, Bob Salzberg. My co-host today is Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. We're gonna be talking with our guests about the process of drawing new legislative districts in Indiana and the impact that it will have on Hoosiers from all walks of life. Two independent analyses of Indiana's redistricting maps say the districts drawn by Republicans are heavily skewed in their favor. These evaluations also say that the new State House, Senate, and Congressional maps will create very few competitive districts. And we're going to be talking with our guests about that today. And our guests are Ted Bohm, who is former Associate Justice of the Indiana Supreme Court, Noelle Snyder, Communications and Advocacy Coordinator at Women for Change Indiana, and Laura Wilson. Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Indianapolis. If you have questions or comments, you can send them to us, news at org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We did a show about redistricting before the lines were drawn, and now we're kind of going to evaluate uh, how the Republicans did during this session. But first, I want to start with uh, some history, because um, Justice Boehm, uh, so you were the lead counsel in 1986 in a Supreme Court case that centered on gerrymandering in the 1981 Indiana maps so of 40 years ago. Can you talk about that case? What What was that case all about? And did it establish any precedent or, or any law going forward? Well,
2: we did establish a precedent, uh, but... Uh, to end the story before it begins, the Supreme Court, in uh, two years ago, reversed that precedent. Um, but I'll, I'll try and give you the background. Uh, Frank O'Bannon at that time was the leader of the Democratic minority in the Indiana Senate. <clears throat> and he and other legislative leaders approached me about challenging the 1980 redistricting. That was the first time that a, a computerized uh, redistricting plan had been developed by professionals outside the legislature. Uh, and one of, it, um, and, and uh, the effect of it was, of course, to create a, a Republican plan drawn by the legislature uh, that was in place at that time. And it it, uh, clearly created a virtually unreversible Republican majority for the rest of the decade of the 1980s. As it turned out by 1989, the election did in fact, turn around that uh, uh, redistricting because it wasn't as good redistricting as it's currently in place. But to get back to the 1980s story, uh, we filed that lawsuit in 1982 as soon as the maps had become effective um, for the 1982 election. It came to trial in the Indiana court in 1984. That's a three-judge court. It's an unusual procedure where there's a court from the federal court of appeals in chicago and two district judges who sat on the case and and in 1984 they rendered their decision which held that the maps drawn by the 1982 general assembly were unconstitutional uh, That case then went directly to the US Supreme Court, which is an unusual procedure, but there's no procedure to go to an intermediate appellate court. You go directly to the US Supreme Court in redistricting cases. So in 1984, we had uh, an argument on that case, and ultimately the decision came down in in 1986. Six of the nine US Supreme Court justices agreed with us that a challenge to gerrymandering was a matter the federal courts could entertain and could determine to be unconstitutional three justices dissented on that point uh, the the rest of the case is too difficult to a uh, little more detail than you want at this point but time went on uh, that was the the first and only case to hold in the district court that the district case that the redistricting was unconstitutional until we get to much more recent times where several federal district courts had said the same thing. Leading up to the 19, uh, to, I'm sorry, to the 2018 decision in the U.S. Supreme Court that held that the Supreme Court's cannot entertain such a complaint that it's outside the realm of the federal judiciary to review it, uh, which reversed the original decision that we had obtained in 1986 um is
1: that a, that's a pretty brief encapsulation that's, that's actually a, a that's a great encapsulation of of what's occurred but if i could follow up and say so with the decision um in 2018 where, where do we stand now about redistricting? So is it just in the hands of the general or the, the legislatures of all the states with no real opportunity for um, redress? Basically, yes. The answer is
2: states in, like Indiana, which don't have any way for the voters to put a matter, a matter on the ballot even if the legislature doesn't want it, there. Uh, so-called voter initiative plans, which exist in several states, mostly in the western United States, um, have been have been used to put more neutral uh, plans in place for drawing the districts. Notable examples are California and Arizona, uh, where they have reasonable redistricting plans and other states around the country are trying from time to time but we can't do that in indiana because there's no voter initiative you can't put a matter on the legislative uh, agenda and you can't enact a law by voter initiative without legislative approval the result is in indiana we're out to lunch
1: so just how far out to lunch are we laura wilson yeah laura wilson completely. No, no else. completely, completely? okay yeah. i want to ask our but the husband. only thing we can do is wait for a change in the
2: election to get a more reasonable legislature on this point which
1: will take in my judgment at least a decade the uh, analyses that i referred to in the open it seemed to show that that things are pretty well locked up for the Republicans, Laura Wilson, Noel Snyder, could you comment uh, on that? Yeah,
3: well, I agree with a lot of the assessments uh, that the way the district lines are drawn certainly advantage Republicans, and that's entirely to be expected. We're one of thirty states. Um, that draws their state legislature, draws their own state legislative lines. And we're, we're one of 31 where their state log- legislature draws their congressional districts. Of course, they will do it to some sort of advantage. Uh, but the the larger question, the thing that I think I get really excited about with regards to districting is that it is both retrospective and with some sort of speculation, some, some prospective. So these district lines are drawn with the assumptions of what we know of- have changed. Assumption is probably the wrong word here, but what we know has changed in the last 10 years, we can see where populations have moved, where they've shifted, who's occupying spaces and how it's different. And so we draw those lines based on that. But what we don't know, what our state legislatures don't know, what probably most fortune tellers really don't know if they're being honest with their occupation is that we don't know how those are going to change in the future and that these are the district lines that not just will be in existence for us in the upcoming congressional midterms in 2022 and then the subsequent presidential and on the local elections but but they will last us for the next 10 years what i find to be fascinating is trying to assess strategy and that we know that yes based on what's going on right now and based on what the population looks like right now these will certainly advantage Republicans, which I believe is to be expected given the circumstances of drawing them, but how much they will advantage them, how how things will change. I'm in central Indiana, and you've seen a change in terms of the shift of um, the fifth congressional district, those lines changed, but also recently partisanship in that area changed. When we talk about Carmel and Fishers in that area, we know what's happened. What we don't know is what's going to happen. And that's what makes this, I think, a little bit more exciting, uh, certainly a little bit harder to predict. Um, but also part of the game in districting is is not, it's based on what happened, yes, but it's going to impact what happens in the future as well.
1: Noelle Snyder, uh, Women for Change funded uh, Christopher Warshaw's analysis of the Indiana House map and congressional map and, and Professor Warshaw is with George Washington University. His analysis says that uh, the maps show Republicans will likely hold nearly 70 percent of the seats, if, if not more. Yeah. Why did you first of all, why did you fund the study? And then, you know, what did the what does the, the study show us?
4: Yeah, so we funded this study because we think it's so important for the public to become more knowledgeable on this. Um, We don't want to keep this information away from people. They should know how our state has trended in the past and why they should care about this. This is that has been one of the main focuses of um, getting our information out, explaining to all of our supporters and just the general public why this is so important. Um, And... Uh, Dr. Wilson, like you just said, this is affecting everybody for the next 10 years. And that's one of the scary parts of that. So that's why it was important to Women for Change. Um, And so from Dr. Warshaw's analysis in his original report, he looked at the past 50 years of data from our maps and how Indiana was. And so it's interesting looking at the efficiency gap. So the efficiency gap is a standard for measuring partisan redistricting. And for the past 50 years, for the Indiana State House, it has been Republican-leaning for four of those. And for the Indiana State House, it has been Republican-leaning for two of those with neutral efficiency gap in the other times. But just to be clear, though, it it is not always just Republicans that do this. You know, it it can be Democrats as well. It just happens to be this year um, in this redistricting process that it is.
1: Okay. Sarah?
5: So, Ted, I was hoping you could chime in a bit, sort of following up from that. Um, how is it that one party really becomes in control of the redistricting process? Well,
2: it's very simple. They have to have a majority of both houses in the state legislature. There were periods in the 80s and 70s when the, the two parties were in more or less equal balance. Uh, and they would strike out bargains where one party would uh, draw the maps to the Senate to favor itself and the other party would draw a separate map that would favor itself in the other house and they just agreed to split the legislature that way (laughs) by agreement since they uh, but that was in the 80s that's not now gone and since then we've had Republican domination of both houses, and they used it very effectively to create di- districting plans that in all likelihood will survive 10 years. I, I understand the, the uh, energy and enthusiasm, and I applaud it uh, for taking this on, but the only way you're gonna get it turned around is at the polls. By electing a legislature that will
5: achieve a more balanced uh, approach to drawing a map. It seems like, I mean, really, whatever party is in control is going to be sort of doing the same thing. So has Indiana ever tried a bipartisan approach or like a bipartisan committee?
2: No, there was a commission appointed uh, by the legislature uh, of which I was a member. In, in 2015 to study this, and it, it came in with a report recommending that we adopt a, a bipartisan plan along the lines of what California and Arizona have adopted. Uh, there would be essentially a, a plan drawn by a, a distinguished group of, of nonpartisan, respected citizens who would not take politics into the map just simply draw the map according to reasonable things like it trying to adhere to existing lines and so on. one of the problems with just one of the many problems with redistricting is that nobody knows in what district they are because the lines don't adhere to any understood boundaries for the most part wander all over the place if you look at what the map looks like uh but it the the techniques of drawing redistricting have gotten so sophisticated now that you you can end up doing what the republicans have done in the most recent map is draw a map that looks pretty regular in the sense that many of the boundaries do adhere to county and township lines and things like that not all by any means but many but uh you can still achieve a completely impenetrable resistance to the the minority party ever getting control during the next 10 years in all in very all likelihood. but i i applaud the people who are pointing to change but it unless there's a dramatic change in history you don't get significant changes over very short periods of time in the recomposition of the districts and many of those changes are made for purposes of preserving the candidates that are in any trouble on the on the side of the dominant party uh, the classic example is how they fortified the fifth congressional district uh to make it a much stronger republican district because there is some risk that the democrats might capture it with the continuing changes that were pointed to earlier uh in similar in um, Marion County and some of the contiguous counties are are trending a little more democratic than they have been and are probably going to continue that. But uh the map is drawn to to eliminate some of those advantages and still for make
1: the, the fifth district pretty safe for the Republicans for the next ten years. We're talking about redistricting in uh Indiana in particular. And uh, I guess the term gerrymandering comes to mind. If you have questions or comments, please send us those at news at indiana public media dot org, and also at noon edition. Uh, Laura Wilson and um, yeah, let's let's start with you, Professor Wilson. Uh, the idea that Republicans will will talk about the fact that no, that they, they weren't really trying to secure their advantages. They were just trying to help people be in their communities of, of interest and try to make them more compact. Is that a reasonable argument?
3: You know, reasonable is a subjective term. I, I think to start with the ways that we can evaluate whether the districts are um, are fair. Because gerrymandering, of course, we all know is redrawing the district line for partisan advantage, and of course, the party in power is going to do it in a way that benefits them, but but the two main characterizations that we look for are looking at if they are competitive, and if they are compact, and competitiveness and compactness are both really important in terms of districting because, uh, to the point you were just saying, if they are Um, not horribly competitive, there's a lot of issues there, but it's going to skew one way for one political party, oftentimes the party in which drew the district lines in the first place. And then in addition to that, if they're not compact, you are potentially connecting lots of different communities that may have very few things in common. And that is gonna be frustrating for the constituencies who might want things that are oftentimes at odds with each other, That's going to be really hard as a representative if you have a rural area and an urban area and they have different needs, different wants, different backgrounds, different expectations, quite frankly. Um, When we look at competitiveness and compactness, I think there's good reason for concern about whether or not these are truly the most competitive or compact maps and In addition to that, one of the things that's kind of interesting is there are some examples. I'm in central Indiana up here, right, uh, where Cindy Kirkhoffer has been drawn into a district with John Jacob, so you would actually be pitting uh, two incumbent Republicans against each other. There's a lot of strategy that goes behind this, and I think to the points that many people have mentioned, and the thing that I think I would want anyone listening to know is that there are other processes there are other ways that states do this. It doesn't have to be done through the state legislature, though most of them do. And that's obviously what we do here in Indiana. But we have to understand that the rules, the game can change. And also those rules are going to reinforce the kind of behaviors that we have. And I think that's, that's one of the most vital things to understand in terms of redistricting. And then, and of course, that gerrymandering question itself as well.
1: Just to follow up on, on that, is there any... Um... And then, Ted, you can answer this, too. But uh, was there anything else that the Republicans have talked about um, that about why they drew the districts the way they did and the advantages that there would be for for Hoosiers to having these districts? Uh, obviously, the Republicans are going to say we drew these new lines for our own political advantage. They did talk about, you know, making them more compact. Was there were there any other things that I'm missing that that they talked about?
3: Yeah, they they use the examples talking about um, the way in which they drew lines for Fort Wayne, for example, and then also looking at, at how they drew the lines for Lafayette and West Lafayette. And you're right, and no one will ever be so transparent and say it was in our our own favor. Though I will point out, I mentioned John Jacob earlier. Um, he cried a foul, saying this is very clearly gerrymandering. Uh, he's a Republican, but this is gerrymandering um, from his party. It's probably not in his best interest. There were examples of. Well, discussions, though, as I mentioned, with um, some of the smaller urban communities in Indiana, uh, where the question of the compactness, but in particular, representation of communities. And what many argued, many of the House Republicans and the Senate Republicans saying this is these are the kind of maps we have, is they said, these are communities of like minded interest. And so it wouldn't be fair if we uh, keep them all in this one group. Right. Certainly critics will say, though, if you divide it into multiple districts versus having it in one or if you divide it in a certain way, you're actually diluting some of the influence of the minority party that could otherwise be very competitive. And, and this is where partisanship is just so evident because both of those things are true. They're both very much true, but it depends on where you're standing, what, which, which version of the truth that you want to believe, which, which idea, which value you hold in higher regard.
2: I I think, uh, if if I may comment, the history of this plan was uh, the same, essentially, as has been done ever since we started redistricting in 1980. Uh, And this year, they did a little bit of unveiling the plans in the previous three decades. The, the redistricting was only unveiled even to the legislators in the majority party within a day or two before the closing of the General Assembly. So it, 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 the, they go through an entire uh, General Assembly session without talking about redistricting at all. On day two or three before this, the session is going to close, the plan is revealed. It's passed through on a series of expedited processes and it becomes law. Nobody has a chance to review it. Nobody makes any significant changes in it. And the plan was actually developed by outside experts. And that's what happened again this year. There's been no mention of the fact that if it was really a plan designed to achieve compactness or correctness or any of these other things that people tend to talk about as as legitimate objectives, uh why did they have to hire a republican uh, consulting firm to spend a couple of hundred thousand dollars to develop this plan the people here in indiana know what an indiana map looks like if, if those were the factors why did they have to go outside and, and develop that and the answer is very simple it's a very complicated analysis to figure out how to come up with population with districts that are equal in population and still uh, look nice on a map, but in fact create a, a series of districts that have the bulk of the districts have more than a 55% majority in favor of the Republican candidates. And 50, a 55-45 split in a district virtually assures that that district will go to the party of the 55 percent or a greater percentage, in this case, most of them are over 60 percent.
1: Talk about how the maps look nice. They, they, they. You can't just see the the um, inequities by looking at the map. Every time we do a show on redistricting, I have to think back to Indiana's congressional district four of a few years ago, um, a couple of decades ago. That started up north of Lafayette and ended south of Bedford and went around Bloomington. It was a crazy looking map that had, you know, Bedford and Purdue University in it, but not Indiana University in it. And those maps, apparently, from what I've heard and other guests have said, were not as uh, partisanly drawn as a, what we're getting now. So you can't. Well, well the, the computers are more sophisticated today.
2: They, it's just it's really almost that simple the, the the analysis is much more sophisticated than it was certainly in the 1980s when we were dealing with drawing maps with with a pen and pencil uh, and, and the republicans for the first time came up with a computerized map that uh, did indeed create a, was a, an effective gerrymander. but they every year the technology of redistricting is getting better because the computers have more capacity and more ability to draw lines that look nice, create nice, clean, apparent lines, but but in fact are just as gerrymandered as the predecessors.
1: Noel Snyder, there are some groups that may have uh, been... Um, Lost even lost more power in this, and some of them are are minority groups and underrepresented groups as it is now. Can you can you talk to us about what the um, analyses that you've seen say about that issue?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, a big focus of what we've been looking at has been with our um, with the demographic data growing in Indiana and. united states in general so we are rich in diversity but we don't see that diversity in the general assembly so when it comes to the maps that are being drawn they the representation that the districts are going to get are not going to actually represent their people and they should be representing their constituents you know um so that's been hard to see because we don't want them to lose faith in the voting system and that goes with everybody and then with women there, you know, we have more than 50% women in our state. So we have 50, it's about 50.8%, but we don't have a lot of women voted in office. And, you know, that can be from numerous things, but if they're not going to be voted in because they're being placed in these districts that, um, that don't take them seriously, or, you know, they're not respected, then they're not going to have a chance. So just a lot of what we've been looking at is our... Hoosiers in our state are losing faith in the process right now and who is going to be representing them. Um, Indiana has never elected a female governor, has only sent a handful of women to the U.S. Congress. So when our maps are being redrawn and it's being redrawn to support only one party or one type of um, candidate that's. Underrepresenting women in their needs. So, when it comes to the legislative session, they are not able to rely on their representatives to ensure that um, bills are passed that are going to help them in the future, whether that be with their health or with economic stability. Um, so, that has been very disappointing to see. And we feel like that is pushing women and um, people of color further back than. It already is right
1: now. I want to follow up on that before I turn it over to Sarah, because I know Sarah has a a question. But uh, can you point to some uh, particular lines that have been drawn or some particular areas of the state where you believe that um, diversity has really taken or the the interests of minority Hoosiers has really been affected?
4: Yeah, so... Um, I guess I'll go in kind of what we were just saying before with District four, but with the districts that are reaching not necessarily in particular, but from the districts that are reaching all the way up north to then down to below um, Marion County, like you said earlier that that doesn't feel like it's representing them well at all because how can one district touch five other ones and still have the same population when? You're looking at um, constituents up by Chicago that are a very different demographic than, you know, say the ones by Marion County right now. They have different goals. They have different means of living um, and they have different jobs. You know, so that that's just one example of how um, with the districts that are stretching from all the way up north to the bottom um, that I can pull right now, I have more the numbers just in general of indiana's growth um with the different with the different ethnic changes in numbers but but
5: yeah noelle just a, a follow-up to that can you just talk about some of the priorities of the legislature i know obviously the legislature here has done a lot with abortion in the past few years what might you predict would be a priority say over the next decade with the new way that these lines are
4: drawn? Yeah so with the new ways that these lines are drawn um I think that it's going to be hard it will be hard to have representatives that um That women and um, minorities feel like are representing them so when it comes to um, legislation with women's health and consent bills or economic stability, um, while those are all matters that are nonpartisan, those, or should be nonpartisan, um, those passing and getting farther along um, might take a step back because the representation in indiana is not actually equaling their constituents right now if that clears that up for you
1: all right we're talking about redistricting on noon edition today and if you have a question or a comment please send them to us at news at and at noon edition uh, Dr. Wilson, you have talked about a little bit about how we don't really know what these districts will look like in ten years. I mean, I, I do know demographic change comes a little bit slowly. Although there have been some awfully booming areas in our state in in recent years, I mean, how how realistic is it that the political viewpoints of um, let's say a a legislative district congressional districts are certainly much larger but a legislative legislative district could change in the time of uh, you know before the next elections
3: it's inevitable to some degree changes now in terms of the likelihood there will be changes in terms of, of demographic shifts but i also want to couch that with the expectation of We wouldn't know what those are, and I'm not saying everything that's red is going to be blue and everything that's blue is going to be red, of course. So that said, if we talk about um, the impact of the governorship, Eric Holcomb has been very heavy on workforce and economic development. And you have seen during his administrations and, and prior to that even, different places, different pockets of Indiana benefit from uh, new industries coming into place. This brings a new skill level of worker. This attracts people to the area. And likewise, the longer term challenge. And I am an optimistic person by heart, but we have to be realistic to the longer challenge of our co- of our our state, our communities which is that there are a lot of people leaving. There's a brain drain that a lot of people are leaving, not just the city centers, but they are leaving the state entirely to go elsewhere. Those demographic shifts are going to be impactful too. And I think what um, I say excites me because I I get excited to see what can happen. I I think there's the inevitability of, of change does not mean the inevitability of progress and Um, These are lines that are going to impact behavior, certainly, and they've been impacted by behavior. But when we look at all of these potential changes in terms of demographics, in terms of the economy, in terms of who will be there, how they will vote, what they will think of, the one thing that does seem very evident, and I'll say the research bears this out, is that when we have less competitive districts. So I'm talking about the district lines that are drawn. Um, They are seen as being safe, which we categorize usually in the scholarship as being 55% or more in favor of one party. When we have a lot of these safe districts, they're not very competitive. You still have competition, but it's not in the general election. This is where I can say, regardless of what changes, this this will probably be true um, still with regardless of of demographic shifts. But when you have these not competitive districts, they're competitive in the primary which is going to attract more extreme candidates, for lack of a better word, so more ideologically to the left or to the right. And we know through the research and the literature that this leads to an increased polarization. Uh, This is something that we've seen nationwide, but I think also really important to point out here because though there will be some demographic shifts, though uh, companies will leave and come and go and people will move around, Uh, We know that while you have these districts and many of them that are seen as not being competitive, they're seen as being very safe, they're going to lead into some of that polarization. And a lot of the friction we have right now, we're talking primarily in terms of the impact for elections, but certainly in terms of of policy, Noel explained it very nicely earlier. It, that that's going to come out. Polarization is going to come out, and that makes it so much harder to compromise. It makes um, increase in terms of legislative gridlock, and and that's one of those really real impacts beyond just who gets elected. It's how they serve. It's what they do in office. That's one of the real impacts that we will see bear out, uh, regardless of all the other things that we say we can't entirely prognosticate.
1: I'm going to ask do- you. Go oh, ahead. I was going to ask as a follow up, and and then I'll give both of you an opportunity to answer this. But we did have a. a- caller sent in um, a note, uh, a listener sent in a note about this very point about the competitiveness of the districts and said, how do we prevent voters from being disenfranchised? I I assume that would be in the general elections because as you said, the primary still might be very competitive. So Dr. Wilson first and then then Ted Bone.
3: Absolutely. So I would make the same assumption as you that they're probably talking about the general election, but it's hard. If you... If either way, if your party is the majority party, right, you're probably going to win regardless. Why bother vote? And likewise, if your party is in the minority, you're probably going to lose regardless. Why bother voting? It depresses voter turnout. I think it, quite frankly, depresses voters sometimes. And that is a real challenge. Now, system-wise... We could we could do a big overhaul. I think Ted has has spoken very eloquently about what that would look like, why we haven't necessarily pursued it. But there are states that use nonpartisan commissions. There are states that use um, extensive and sophisticated cartography where they they generate map after map after map to make them as competitive as possible. So you're looking at a 50 50 district. And the ideal in that the reason why that's so beneficial for democracy as a whole is that it means you're going to have to have good candidates. Right? You um, you're gonna have to put up your best, right? It means that voters are gonna have to be engaged. They're gonna have to pay attention. It means that campaigns are gonna really have to focus on having a strong campaign of having good voter turnout. It's what makes democracy work because democracy necessitates participation. And if we are creating the rules, if we are creating the structure in a way that people feel like their participation doesn't matter, right? There's you're starting to underlie. Um, cutting some of those assumptions with regards to democracy. And and that is really concerning.
2: Ted? Uh, Well, to amplify a little bit the point about the the lack of competitive districts, that's that's a very important point that people sometimes miss. And the, the, the effect of a gerrymander is to create most of the districts, and by that I mean more than 90%, typically 95 or so percent of all the districts are composed of of very clear majorities for one party or another that means the primary of each of those two primary uh, those two parties is the only meaningful event in in the case of the majority districts in the indiana maps today the republican primary is the only significant event and but there are many districts which are even more highly concentrated of Democrats where the the majority party, the the Democratic primary is the only significant event. And all other events in the course of the election are irrelevant. Certainly the general election becomes irrelevant. And, And if the only thing that's important is the primary of whichever party dominates your district, the, The center of gravity of the to take this example of the center of gravity of the Republican Party is to the right of the center of gravity of the 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 uh, population as a whole, just as the center of gravity of the Democratic Party is far to the left of the center of gravity of the population as a whole. But the people in the middle the centrists don't get a vote in either one of those elections because they, they tend not to vote in either primary and, and are forced out of the election process entirely until they go to the general election and are faced with a, a completed election result driven by the primary result. So the, the result is you end up with a legislature that is more divided than you get in a legislature that's reasonably composed of districts that are just drawn by any sort of normal map in the pre-di- pre-districting days. Uh, and one that was just dependent on things like city and county lines to divide districts and let the parties that win or lose, depending on how that goes. And those <coughs> days are long behind us. And and you end up with a district that is just full, is is more polarized than a in, than a district elect, and and we end up with with the result we have at, these, at both the federal and state levels.
5: While well, we've been on the air here, we got a a media release from the Indiana Republican Party, and I just looked at it, and one of the things that um, they say in it is that Indiana legislative leaders ran a, quote, textbook redistricting process that focused on population, not political outcomes. So, um, Ted, just based on some of the things you've said during this hour, I'd, I'd like to get your response to that. And I guess the second part of that I would just ask is, you know, we've reported on how rural areas lost population, cities gained population. So how does that jive with the statement we just got from Republican leaders?
2: I think it's not true uh I think that uh the the simple fact is why did they hire these experts to draw the maps if they if and if they needed nothing more than looking at the Indiana maps and trying to configure it to county lines and city lines and other rational bases for drawing lines Now they did a good job of of fitting their map into that mold. But the primary consideration, very clearly, when you look at the map, and the map that was enacted by law, was basically the very same map that was unveiled to the public uh, and we went through some hearings and so on, but it's the same, essentially the same map that, that emanated from the computers that were hired to produce a Republican majority, and that's what they did.
4: I would I would like to make a comment about this too. Um, so we talked a little bit earlier how the redistricting process wasn't that open um, and transparent as it might have been this year. There were more opportunities to speak, and while we were so happy that people could attend the public hearings and testify, and there were rallies and we had the dates earlier, there were also there was also a lot in that process that people. We're not able to plan for because the dates or the times didn't come out on time so while they say they followed the process to a t and that um that it was great there it felt almost as if they were checking boxes to get public opinion on the matters because without having the times and the dates established at least two weeks in advance that you know, that cancels out our working folks, maybe single parents, um, people that are in school, people that can't come testify and give their opinion on the maps. So I feel as though the maps aren't representing our population and our people because they weren't given a chance to actually express themselves and come to be a part of that procedure.
1: I have a quick follow for Noel also, because I think that the the studies that women for change were involved with um, basically said that indiana 's maps are among the worst. you know the Republicans have just come out as Sarah said with a press release that said well they they just ran a textbook um, redistricting and did everything right yet the mm-hmm. uh, the surveys from uh, or the the information from the studies at George Washington University say. Indiana's maps are among the most biased in the nation. How's that bias calculated and and how, what, how did he conclude that?
4: Yeah. So Dr. Um, Christopher Warshaw produced the study and we worked very close with him throughout it. And so he did the study based on the past 50 years and in the study, you will be able to see different graphs. He has that lay out where, um, As I mentioned earlier, like the efficiency gap is or where we Indiana is in comparison to other states, so where they would be where their partisan bias would lie so comparing our last 50 years of data, it was found that our general assembly and legislative maps were more biased toward one party than 95% of maps enacted in other states. And he used this on a series of different, um, different systems and calculators that he has <laughs> formulas that he has, but it was very interesting to hear and disappointing nonetheless, but it was really nice to have that, um, that hard data to be able to provide because the study was not was not rebutted by anybody and it was used statewide in a lot of in a lot of different public hearings and people testifying.
5: The question here I think probably um, best suited for Laura first that we got but what chance do third or new parties have of success when lines are drawn this way versus via an independent commission? That's a
3: great question and I have to tell you I'm not familiar with too much research which has really examined it uh, generally speaking, the challenges that exist for third parties um, are are far greater in some ways um, than just the district lines themselves. But what I could understand to be the case, certainly in terms of what we do know with regards to districting, is that if you do have more competitive district seats, it would follow that you're enabling more competition, and there could be a great opportunity for a strong third-party candidate or an independent party, um, something different than our traditional red and blue donkey-elephant-Republican-Democrat dynamic Uh, It it could emerge through that. Just as the out-party, the minority party, would be disadvantaged in a district in which they have a clear minority of voters— Uh, would follow. It would be uh, reasonable to expect that the same thing would happen for any third parties when you have these very heavily
5: skewed, imbalanced, safe, and uncompetitive district seats. I have another one here, Laura. I'll let you chime in, and and Ted might want to too, but this is a question from our producer that's pretty interesting. Why are uh, parties allowed to hire outside groups to make map suggestions, but an independent commission isn't possible?
3: Well, anything's possible if you change the rules and that that rule change would have to go through, at least in part, the state legislature. One of the things I, I geek out about, I think it's pretty neat to see is that states do things differently. And so the talk, and I think this is getting to that question, the, the point of that question at least, the, the talk is always, no, this needs to be done in the state legislature. They're the authorities. They understand how this works. And that has been a fairly like, convincing argument. Obviously, there's a reason why 30 and 31 states do this, to draw their congressional and their state legislative maps. It is a majority. That's not to say that it's the correct thing or the best thing, but that's what a lot of them do. If you buy into that, if you're going to say, oh, well, there's an authority in terms of expertise, or perhaps there's some kind of special background, I, I could see one further making the argument, saying um, hiring someone out it's like hiring a consultant. You know, and, Maybe it's less democratic, but you know they have some sort of expertise or specialization. I can't pretend that these are arguments made without regards to partisanship or benefit. And I I think we'd be remiss if we thought for just one second that they were genuinely out of only the good of heart and without other personal, individual, and strategic considerations in mind. Um, But but these things, whether or not we, what you use, what you don't use, how you go about doing it there, I mean, they're all changeable. They're all part of the rules of the game, the constitution, the statutes. And just because we've had, it doesn't mean we would have to continue to do so, but it would require a recognition and a change that would disadvantage the people who are already benefiting from the system. And that would be very difficult to do.
2: Yeah. I mean, a simple reason for hiring the experts, uh, in this and every other uh, recent election is to get somebody who can do the rather com- complicated process of creating a totally biased map that still pre- looks nice pre- presents itself on a map with having regular lines and but nonetheless creates the majority you want and that with today's computers and analyses that can be done but it is a complicated process and that 's why they hired these experts, and the the obvious question is what's the difference between the law that was actually enacted and what was proposed as as initially presented as developed by their uh, resident experts?
1: Uh, and the answer is not much. I want to ask Laura Wilson for a, a little explanation just on very something very specific. Why did the Republicans put two of their own into the same district?
3: Yes, I think you're talking about John Jacob and Cindy Kirkhoffer, yes. or, uh-huh. you know, right? Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> um, internal politics, I imagine. Um, Jacob has been very controversial. I, When I talk to him in my classes and we, we talk about different state legislators, I often picture the image of him walking around the state legislature with the plastic aborted fetus around his neck wearing um, medical equipment. And obviously a protest against... Um, laws regarding abortion so he's, he's much more conservative kirkhoffer was actually the party chair for the republicans in marion county last year she lost a fairly narrow race just down the road of our university here in the beach grove area to mitch gore a very moderate democrat and uh is pretty moderate as a republican so i think by putting them in there you know you're pitting two of your own against each other but that's also going to potentially take what is right now at least with regards to Gorsi a Democratic seat, and flipping it to Republican. There were other sacrifices like that. Um, they're relatively few and far between, but they're, just because you're part of the party, uh, these are these are umbrellas. Uh, people fall into line, but that doesn't mean they feel exactly the same about every issue and about every person. And I, I think that's one of those little highlighted um, internal tiffs, if you will, that you can see kind of play out in this t- process.
1: Gotcha. Thank you very much for that. I have a final question for... Um, Noelle Snyder, and I think uh, we'll be out of time after this, but what's what's next for women for change? How are you going to try to empower communities to to participate in state politics and elections?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, now that this is you know coming to a close, we are really looking forward to the 2022 session, um, as well as we have a couple of programs coming up in the next two months that support Women running for office, giving them a chance to know the different tools that they might not have heard, or just women that want to support others running for office so that they can get involved in politics. That's a great. That's a great start um, to build that community. And then we have another program called State of Women, just learning about the different ways that we can enhance Indiana in the future. You know, we all love our state, and it starts here of building a better future for our children and for those that hopefully move here
1: and see our state in the future. All right. Thank you very much. I want to thank all three of our guests, Noelle Snyder, Ted Bohm, and Laura Wilson. Thank you for being here for this great discussion on redistricting. And I also want to thank Sarah Whitmire, my co-host, Benta Boutier and Holden Abshire, our producers, and John Bailey, our um, engineer. Sorry. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening.
0: Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, Fiber Internet, Streaming TV, Home Security, and Automation in Southern Indiana. More information at Smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812 812- Two six nine eight eight nine seven or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation: Improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.